0: All right, so before we get started, we're going to do a little bit of a um, recap from last week. And we may or may not have a pop quiz. That's what makes it a pop quiz. Um, Nobody knows. So we'll look at a couple of these things. So from last week, we didn't get to uh, talk about this a whole lot. And I know some of us weren't here. But we're going to look at the AIM approach. uh, And that's something that is in the book. And again, for those of you who maybe this is your first time, or learning from a book called Natural Evangelism by Matthew Morine. It's published with Gospel Advocate. And it's about trying to be better evangelists in our everyday life. But if you would turn to Acts chapter 22, and look, um, beginning in verse 1, we'll notice some things just from Paul's uh, life here in his defense. And again, we're not condoning any kind of denominational testimony giving. Uh, but there is a way to be personal with people and share your own experiences with them in such a way that they're drawn to Christianity. Hopefully Jesus has made a difference in our lives and people can see that in us and they'll say, wow, I want some of that in my life as well. All right, so Acts 22. Notice in the first place, verses 1 through 5, this idea of authenticity. It says, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent then he said, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our Father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way, speaking of Christianity, to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. As also the high priest bears me witness and all the counsel of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. So notice Paul's not really sugarcoating a whole lot of his past experiences. Bless you. He's telling them, this is what my past life was like. I persecuted this way that I'm now a part of to the point of death. And we might not have a past that was uh, antagonistic toward Christianity necessarily, uh, but I'm sure we all have Uh, maybe some messy situation that because of God's guidance through his word, we were able to get through. Maybe there was something in our life that God was able to help us with. Uh, And by being a Christian, we were able to have this turnaround. Um, If we know people well enough when we're sharing the gospel with them, you know, there's an opportunity there to be authentic and to say, look, I struggle with some of these things as well, but God gives me help. He could help you too. So the next thing, this next idea is interest. So he lays the groundwork of his past life and then Paul here builds some interest, right? There's a a conflict in this account and it, it makes the people listening to it kind of want to listen even more. He says, "'Now it happened, as I journeyed "'and came near Damascus at about noon, "'suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, "'and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, "'Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?' "'So I answered, "'Who are you, Lord?' And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all the things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. So, you see, here Paul lays the groundwork. He's authentically telling about some things about his life. But then there is the point where things change, right? There's this point where he meets Jesus on this road. And that point obviously isn't the same to us. Jesus doesn't reveal himself to the same way with us today. But maybe you can think of a point in your life that you could share with somebody when you realize, hey, I need to obey the gospel. Or you realize, hey, I haven't been living my life in step with what Jesus commands. Okay, so that's the next thing Paul talks about when he's talking to these individuals, this defense of himself, but also we'll see his goal is to try to get others to think about these things and to convert as well. Uh, So there's some interest that's gained. And then uh, he talks about how he was made into the person that he is today, the difference that was made in Paul's life. Then a certain Ananias, verse 12, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will and see the just one, and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance, and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned you and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by, consenting to his death, and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said, Depart, for I will send you from here to the Gentiles. And when they listened to him until this word, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. So they kind of doubled down on them wanting Paul to die. But notice, I think it's interesting what Paul shares with these individuals, this defense of himself. We see some things Maybe, though our experience is different, not miraculous, we're not apostles, uh, we see some things that maybe we can work into conversations with others. Uh, I know, I'm not saying this to brag, just because of my past life and then becoming a Christian, there were people who approached me and would ask me, like, what happened? Like, we knew you used to talk about Christianity a certain way, and now you're going to church every week and all this stuff. What made the difference? And for me, that was a good opportunity. I didn't always capitalize on it the way I should have. But that was a good opportunity to share with them what made the difference. And that, of course, is the gospel of Jesus and um, what God had done for me through his son. So I think through this, we see a little bit of approach maybe that we can emulate in a way, uh, be honest with people, maybe seek some common ground, talk about you know, the points of conflict when we realized we needed help, And then talk about the difference Jesus has made in our lives. And there's a lot of people and our friends, our family, who need help and are looking for something to pull them out of the rut they're in, and nothing really ultimately is going to work other than the gospel. So hopefully we can take uh, advantage of those opportunities. So this is what we didn't get to last week. Are there any uh, questions or comments you have on this, this little breakdown, the AIM approach for Max 22, 1 through 22? Okay. Alright, so quiz time. Alright, here we go. So remember the steps, we're gonna do them all together. And then the verses, I'm gonna to need to see some hands, preferably not from elders or preachers. But if nobody else knows it, that might be my only option. Okay. Hopefully. Um oh, hold on. So what's the first one? Alright. Oh. Okay, what's the second one? Believe. Believe. What's the third one? There you go. What's the fourth one? Okay, I think I heard less voices there. And what's the, what's the last one for this list? Baptized. Baptized. Extra credit, what's the extra one that's up there sometimes that's not on this one? Live faithfully. Okay, perfect. All right, so now we're going to do verses, and hopefully the PowerPoint will um, cooperate. Who's got the verse? Raise your hand, please. For here, I didn't say no deacons, so Marvin, I guess he can. I guess he can go. Romans ten seventeen. Romans 10, 17. Very good. Um, all right. Who's got the verse for believe? And again, if it's another acceptable one, I'll take it. But what do we got? Somebody over here said it. Okay, great. John three sixteen. Easy one to remember. Uh, There's a lot you could go, a lot of places you could go for that. Acts 16, Hebrews 11. Repent. Who's got the verse for repent? Make sure you raise your hand. Yes, ma'am. Romans 10.10. For repent, not quite, not quite, almost. Yes, sir. Acts 2.38, that'll fit. That'll work. I'll give you credit for that one. There's another one up there, though. Anybody remember? There is Luke 13, 3 and 5. That's one of them. There's 2 Corinthians 7.10, but that's not the one we're looking for. Yes, ma'am. Acts 3.19. There we go. There we go. Thank you. Everybody had some good, some good input there. I appreciate that. All right, now confess. Who has confessed? There we go. Romans 10 and 10. Very good. And really Romans 10, 9 and 10. Um, and a couple other places. Acts 8:37, among others. And then be baptized. There's a lot you could go to here. Which one we got for this? Acts 2.38. Good. Most of us know that one. Fantastic. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Anybody else have any other that could go unbaptized? Anybody else have any? 1 Peter 3.21, there's a good one. Mark 16.16, I heard somebody in the back. There you go. And then, we just read one too, 22.16, Acts 22.16. All right, I'm losing control, we'll move on. But I appreciate all the input, and uh, we can expect that pretty much every week. If you've lost your piece of paper with it on there, um, see me afterwards and we'll have a conversation. But uh, we, we, again, we're working on a handout everybody's going to get with this and more. Okay, so getting to the lesson for this week, lesson three of entering the field, and the lesson we're going to think about, the topic we're going to be thinking about is this. Don't be afraid to eat with sinners. Or I might hear that and think, huh. Well, I don't know if I'm going to eat with sinners. Um, But if you've ever gone to a restaurant, you don't really have another choice. Maybe not at your table, but they're somewhere, right? Um, I'm not judging anybody, just saying. Okay. So don't be afraid to eat with sinners. And in the book, if you look at your sheet, I talk about David, the Bible boy, and you have no idea what that is. That's just from the book, and I'm going to explain it to you. That's a reminder for me. In the book, he gives an example of the high school he went to. And there were really only a couple of Christians at this school, at least people who were adamant about their faith. And remember, this is up in Nova Scotia, Canada. And there was one boy named David, and he had the nickname of the Bible Boy. And he got along with him. But sometimes he would be walking with the Bible Boy, because he was real outspoken about his faith. Sometimes he'd be walking in the halls with the Bible Boy, and people would see him and turn around. And just start walking the other direction, or you know, if he came up to a group of people, some people would leave because they were uncomfortable with how that boy would always bring up either Jesus or something about his faith or whatever. And uh, maybe we know somebody like that who's always talking about those kinds of things. I think that'd be good. But he brings up this point from Second Corinthians two fourteen through sixteen about, depending on your translation, the fragrance of Christ or the aroma of Christ. And now Paul, when he mentions this, is referring specifically to him and his co-workers, but I do think that there's an application, a broader application for us as well here. All right, so turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 14-16. through 16. And if somebody gets there and wants to read that loudly for us, go right ahead. No, thanks be to God. Thank you. So Paul mentions this idea here of being led in this victory march by Jesus Christ. And part of what Paul is saying is, look, as a missionary, as an apostle, everywhere I go, if I'm following God, it's going to be successful. But success might look like being shipwrecked or being beaten or whatever. But he's saying through Christ, I'm successful in what I'm trying to do for Him. And then he describes him and his co-workers as the fragrance of Christ or as the aroma of Christ. And part of this is this reference back to the Old Testament when sacrifices were made. And then you might remember, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you have this pleasing aroma that wafts up to the Lord. And it's this idea of people... Now obviously, um, you know some of that is a metaphor, but this idea of being so pleasing to God that you, know, you just smell a good smell and you're like, man, that's a good smell. Maybe you wake up or maybe you're the one making uh, cinnamon rolls. That's the best smell in the world, I think. Go down, you know, go in the kitchen. You smell cinnamon rolls. Anyway, I never have to cook them. That's part of why I think that. But um, so this idea of a pleasing aroma. But notice, not everybody reacts the same way to this aroma. Look at what the text says. To those who are perishing, what does it smell like? Death leading to death. Not a very good, not a very good scent. But to those who are saved, what does it smell like? Life leading to life. It smells good. And really, part of what he's saying here is sometimes not purposefully, not purposefully, just by living out your faith, sometimes sinners will be repelled by that. And that's not necessarily something we want, right? Because we want to have conversations with those people. But maybe you've been in a situation where just by whether it's standing up for something or just by speaking to somebody and saying, hey, that's not right, then all of a sudden they're kind of put off by you and maybe the relationship's not the same. I remember when I was in high school and after I uh, was baptized and became a Christian, I went back to school and there was a math test and there was an answer sheet being passed around. We, you know, there was a group of us who were trying to cheat on the math test, and it got to me. And again, I'm not trying to brag, but you know, I was—I mean, I was still wet from my baptism—and I said, "I can't, I can't do that." And the guy who passed me the answer sheet was offended. He was mad at me, and it wasn't that he wanted me to cheat, but by me saying, "No, I can't do that," it convicted him, and he knew, well, I probably shouldn't be doing this either." But the fact that I wasn't really joining in with them bothered him. And we're still friends for the most part, but there's a couple of different instances where something like that happened with him where it rubbed him the wrong way just because I was trying to leave a, live a life pleasing to God. And sometimes when we do that, some people will be bothered by that and they will be repelled by that. But the point he tries to make about that in the book is if the aroma of Christ on us repels the sinner, That's fine. That, I mean, there's nothing we can do about that. We're supposed to be the fragrance of Christ, if you will. Christ should be present in our lives and in our walk. But we shouldn't deliberately behave as sinner repellent. In other words, we shouldn't be extra rough with people who are sinners just so they won't be around us. That's not what we're trying to do. Now, if by living out our faith, they don't want to be around us, that's one thing. But if we have an overinflated sense of who we are, or we try to uh, be holier than thou, uh, then obviously we have problems and we're not going to be able to build relationships with those people and we're not going to be able to effectively share the Gospel with them. Um, so don't compromise. Don't compromise on being who Christ wants us to be, but at the same time, be warm and welcoming to those who are sinners. And this is why. We have something that they need. And it's not that we're going to save them, but in Romans ten ten through 17 Paul's making this whole point that people cannot be saved without the gospel, and people cannot hear the gospel unless somebody tells it to them, right? Uh, So our goal isn't to push people away. We want to welcome people. We want to try to help people, but not everybody is going to appreciate that effort. All right, what questions or comments might you have on 2 Corinthians 2 and that idea of the fragrance of Christ? Fragrance of Christ. I had a, um, this is just kind of off topic, but when I was at Freed for a little while, I worked in the mail room where the mail, M-A-I-L, where the mail would go back and forth and we'd, you know, give it to put it in whoever's box needed the mail and packages and everything. And one of the women that worked in there with me, older Christian lady, was really into essential oils. And one of the ones she loved was frankincense. And you know, there's that passage where uh, the wise men, some of them bring frankincense to Christ. So whenever I read about the aroma of Christ, I'm always thinking about that lady with the frankincense oils. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about, but I can't shake that memory. Um, frankincense. Who knew? Okay. Evangelistic insights from Matthew 9, 9-13. Let's turn here. And this is one of the occasions in the Gospel where we see Jesus... Eating with sinners and part of this idea that this whole chapter is about. Matthew 9, 9 through 13. And we'll read, let's we're gonna go ahead and read all these verses, and then we're gonna kind of zoom in uh, bit by bit. So if somebody could read that for us, Matthew 19, 9 through 13, when you get there. Yeah, sorry, Matthew 9, 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on- Alright, thank you very much. Uh, so we see this conflict here between Jesus and the Pharisees because of His practice of eating with sinners. And this is an interesting side note. You know, this is from uh, the Gospel according to Matthew. And in Matthew 9.9 9, uh, is the account of Matthew being called to be an apostle. And in the other Gospels that mention this episode, Matthew is called Levi. But here in the gospel that bears his name, he's referred to as Matthew. And some people think that may have been like a hum- humility thing on his part because Matthew is more of like a pagan Gentile name while Levi is obviously the name of, you know, one of the, the, the 12 tribes and the, the tribe from which the priests came. Uh, but it's an interesting side note. But before we kind of look at what, exactly what's going on here, I think it's important for us to, to understand the chasm between the Pharisees and Jesus. So many of you probably know this, but the Pharisees were known for being separate from people who they deemed unholy. That's actually in their name. The word Pharisee comes from an Aramaic word which means to separate, to divide, or to distinguish. And they took great pride in being not only morally separated from people, but in some cases physically separated from those who they deemed to be sinners so that they don't get unholy by contact, right? Um, and there's a couple of interesting things about the Pharisees there, point two, under point A there. Uh, Josephus, the first century historian who's a Jew working for Rome, he records that Pharisees were one of the three primary sects of Judaism. You had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. You read about the Sadducees in the Bible as well. And they emerged as the dominant religious and political party of the region in around 76 BC. At that time, it was right before Rome came in and they were able to kind of solidify power and they were able to hold on to it for decades and that's why they're so prevalent in the New Testament. And Josephus even mentions, and of course we don't need him to know this, the Bible mentions it quite a lot, that Pharisees were known for appearing more religious than other people. In other words, Josephus writing to Romans so that they could understand Jerusalem says, look, if you were to go to Jerusalem before it was destroyed, you would see these people called the Pharisees and you'd be able to tell just by observing them that they were more righteous than other people. And that's something that they took a lot of pride in. And it's something that they were willing to defend at all costs, even to the exclusion of really obeying God and the exclusion of those who needed God the most. And we see that... In addition to following the law, Mark 7.3 records for us that they also held to the tradition of the elders. So it wasn't just they were really serious about following God's law. They had all of these really man-made commands that they would bind on other people. And they would say, if you don't do these things, you're not righteous. Um, and this is really, point, sub-point four here is really the divide between Jesus and the Pharisees. This is where a lot of the conflict arises. It's in this idea that the Pharisees were concerned with outward appearances of righteousness to the neglect of true inward righteousness. So they weren't willing to sit with tax collectors and sinners because they did not want to appear as a tax collector or a sinner. And of course, in Matthew 23, if you would turn there just to get a little bit more of insight of some of these conflicts, again and again, one of the biggest things that Jesus harps on here And the Pharisees is that they seek to appear righteous to the neglect of true inward righteousness. So look at Matthew 23, verses 5 through 7 is where we'll start. And then we'll kind of jump down and slide down to the rest of this passage. And there we read, speaking of the Pharisees, Jesus says, But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. So, there were these things that they did clothing and apparel-wise to try to make themselves view, be, uh, be viewed as more righteous. And then notice verse 6, they loved the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogue. So they want to be in that prominent position. They want to have the good seat at a dinner, which was a huge part of the social fabric of the first century, or at the gathering, the synagogue. Um, and remember what Jesus said, when you get invited to a dinner, where do you sit? in the back at the worst seat. And then if you're invited up, you can have that honor of sitting up, but you don't just presume that you deserve the best seat. Uh, So that's one of the conflicts Jesus had with the Pharisees. And then even verse seven, greetings in the marketplaces. So notice a public square, the public square. This isn't in their house, in the marketplaces. They demand that they're called what? Rabbi or teacher. They want everybody to know who they are. And then if you move on even to verse 14, It says, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers.'" So they're making long prayers not to... um, This is the New King James and the King James. Not to do it for God, not to be more holy, but just out of pretense. Just to show who they are. And then notice verses 25-28. through And then we'll move on. He's continuing his woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites.'" For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. So you see again, they're more concerned with appearances and how how other people view them than really being righteous on the inside. And he continues on, verse 27, What do you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you like whitewashed tombs, which was a practice in uh first century there in that area, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So we see why what was really the main rub between Jesus and the Pharisees? They were concerned about outward righteousness to the neglect of inward righteousness. And when that's what your focus is, how do you react to people who you deem as sinners? You don't want to be around them. Even if you think there's some way you could help them, you're really not that interested. Why? First, you don't want somebody to see you with that person and assume you guys are alike. And secondly, you don't want to somehow allow that person to like, rub off on you and make you less holy. So that's part of the reason why you have this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. But unlike Jesus and hopefully the Christian, the goal of the Pharisee was to be a good Pharisee rather than to actually help others and be pleasing to God. Alright, and it's a good reminder for us, sometimes we can think about this, you know, um, we shouldn't compromise our holiness, but we cannot neglect the mission of God in that pursuit. Um, now obviously, if talking to s- somebody certain would tempt you, and it's you think it's too much of a temptation to even try doing, then don't do it. If a certain location would tempt you to be on, don't do it. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't reach out to those who need the Gospel the most. Okay, so this next thing, reach out to the ignored. Matthew 9.9, 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. He said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. So from the Pharisees' perspective, the fact that the Messiah or any Jewish religious leader would call out to a tax collector is ridiculous. Think about from, Matthew's, or from the Pharisees' perspective. They, at all costs, are trying to not be controlled by Rome. Matthew is a Jewish man whose job is to collect taxes from Jewish people so that the Romans can have more money. In almost every way, he's the exact opposite of what the Pharisees think a Jew should be. But Jesus calls him and says, follow me. Um, So... Maybe there's somebody we know with a bad reputation, there's somebody in our life who we think might be the least likely person to respond to the gospel. Uh, they're still worth reaching out to. Uh, likewise, spend time with those who need your influence. Look at Matt, uh, verses 10 through 11 uh, that what happens and we'll just paraphrase for a time, Jesus goes to his house, he eats a meal with him, uh, and then other tax collectors come and join the meal. Right? So you can imagine Jesus at this table with a good number of people, most of them tax collectors and other professions that were deemed unrighteous at the time. And it's not just that Jesus called Matthew. He spent time with him and with others like him. And the Pharisees were bothered by this. Why? Because in their minds, they were sinners. Uh, but we need to take this lesson from Jesus in that we need to see people how God sees them. Sure, they're sinners, but they need help. Right? And we shouldn't spend time with people who are going to drag us down. But if we can help them, lift them up, share something with them, we should. Okay, and then remember the mission. When the Pharisees are mad about what Jesus is doing, He doesn't say, hey, look, I'm allowed to do this. He doesn't say, hey, look, I mean, there's nothing wrong with this. He says, you need to go to your Bibles and learn what this phrase means. I desire... i oh, sorry, what is it? Yeah, I desire mercy... And that sacrifice. And he gives that idea of a physician. Who does a doctor go to? Not to those who are well, but to those who are sick. And he's trying to get them to think about this. If we want to live for God in this life, and we want want God to have the largest impact in our community as possible, we're going to have to reach out to people who are undesirable, who are clearly seen as sinners, people in messy situations. And we shouldn't assume because they're there in that place, that God can't, through His Word, call them to Himself. Uh, So pretty interesting. And a couple of good quotes from the book here uh, toward the end there. He says, uh, it is true we should protect ourselves from negative influences, but not to the degree that we protect others from Christ. So if in the name of protecting against bad influences, we never reach out to anybody, obviously that's a problem. And then he says, never sacrifice your soul for outreach, but strengthen your soul for outreach. So don't sin so that others can be saved. That's not how it works. But make sure you're right with God. Make sure that you're doing what you have to do and spend time with people, uh, even those who the world may look at or religious people may look at as unrighteous because they're the people who, quite frankly, need the Gospel the most. All right, and I know we're kind of running out of time here, but... Um, Action Evangelism, the homework for this week. And again, it says write. You don't have to write. Just think about this throughout the week. And it kind of gives three steps in the book. The first one is to make a list of friends or family that are not Christians. If you know your friends and family, you probably don't have to pull out a pen. You can just think of people, right, who aren't Christians. The second one is write a plan or think of a plan to connect with them in order to share your faith. Now, you don't have to share your faith on the first time you meet up with them, right? If I have a friend I haven't seen for four years and I invite him to dinner and I start with the plan of salvation before the appetizer gets there, that's not necessarily going to be the most effective thing, right? Uh, But we're connecting with the purpose of sharing your faith. And if you want to be serious about it, I hope you'll do this, include a date to hold yourself accountable. And maybe we can't physically or just logistically go and meet up with somebody, but maybe we can start calling somebody regularly and start inserting some of these things in our conversations. Maybe there's somebody we can contact via social media or some other means and start a rapport and a conversation with and start inserting these situations. If you have close family members who aren't Christians, this should be extremely easy. Um, uh, But we need to hold ourselves accountable and allow ourselves to be intentional Sorry, about inserting uh, these spiritual things in these conversations. All right, we are out of time, but any questions or comments before we close? All right, thank you for your time, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.